Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to be back in, in touch, guys. Uh, Rudyard, tell us a bit about your trip. Uh, it's awesome yeah. to have you back in the moderating chair. Indeed, it's great to be here with you all. I was in Algonquin Park uh, with my 11-year-old son doing a father-son canoe trip. I got to say, there's something about sleeping on <laughs> canoe trips that is a certain kind of medieval torture. I enjoy everything else, but I, you come to dread the night. It, your soul despairs for the, the utter lack of... Uh, Know, any kind of restful sleep for any length of time. So lovely, except for the sleeping. If listeners have any solutions to backcountry bedding, uh, email me, okay? <laughs> I need help badly. But look, let's jump right into the news uh, this week. And I, I want to start with uh, some waves, frankly, Sean, that you've made over the last seven days. It's always kind of fun to see when the hub touches a nerve. Um You've uh, written for The Hub recently and then had an interview with David Frum, which I highly recommend listeners, if you haven't checked it out from last week, go back and spin it up on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, both the article and the interview with David, a kind of reflection on kind of radicalization of younger conservatives uh, and the extent to which uh, the movement seems to have a problem uh, to the extent to which there are high profile people that are getting uh, exposed for racist, anti-Semitic, uh, white supremacist uh, links and content, and then just generally um, an awareness of a kind of bro culture, um, a relentless maleness to a lot of the grassroots energy that's around conservative ideas today. Um, some pushback, Sean, and let me read a couple of the <laughs> juicier ones I enjoyed on Twitter to your article and conversation with David, one person writing, if intellectual elitism ever needs two poster boys, hands down, you two, i.e. you, Sean, and David Frum will take the spots stop preaching to the choir and aim for the back pews. I love it. <laughs> uh, I could go on and on. You kind of got flamed, Sean, to be honest, by a portion of your followers on Twitter and in reaction to the conversation with David. What's going on here? What do you think of the pushback? Um, why are conservatives seemingly, I don't know, a little flinty, a little uncomfortable with this line of criticism? Well, I think they're accustomed to it from the left, right? Um, the epithet far right has become used indiscriminately um, in our political conversation. It's taken on a kind of elastic meaning from everything that is genuinely far right. And we're talking about the, the racialism and the anti-Semitism and all the rest that you mentioned to, you know, what ought to be totally acceptable views in mainstream public discourse, including, for instance, 
whether we've overreached when it comes to the level of immigration coming into the country. And so I think part of what what you're seeing in the reaction is a kind of recoil to someone who they think is part of the having a kind of internal conversation, taking on some of the language that you're seeing elsewhere. Um, but I would I would challenge that. You know, I think my conservative credentials are pretty rock solid. You know, I read my Hayek and Burke and all the rest growing up. Um, and and I hope that my comments about these issues are seen as a, a constructive effort on the part of someone who feels passionately about conservative ideas and conservative values um, to effectively disassociate those ideas and values from, I think, pretty toxic figures and ideas. You know, there's something, you know, maybe just to kind of try to encapsulate what we're talking about here. When I grew up, I looked up to conservative figures like George Will. Um, and it seems to me a lot of people in their 20s these days who um, purport to be conservatives are looking up to people like Andrew and Tristan Tate. Um, and I think that's a problem. And um, that's precisely why I've wanted to call it out at the hub uh, over the past week or so. One of the things that came up in your conversation with David Fromm, I want to bring to you, Stuart, is uh, David's observation of the absence of women in the grassroots of, um, you know, conservative kind of circles, either political or adjacent, and the extent to which, you know, David, who has that multi-decade experience of living and breathing as a, a small C conservative, kind of said, you know, in the 80s, women were there, they were part of the movement, they had a tempering effect on uh, the discourse. And, and this resonates with me. Um, I want to get your reaction to that piece of it, because it's part of the dynamic that we've seen around some ways, the movement that Pierre Polyev has built, that it, it has a real appeal to men and, you know, yet women react to it. And I'm wondering, Stuart, what your thoughts are. Is, is there something in modern contemporary present day conservatism that just turns women off, it turns men on. And what the heck is that thing? Yeah, I, there is, so readers can read a piece I have out today at the hub, which is about two young, interesting new people in the conservative party. So Jamil Giovanni, who's running in Durham to get the conservative nomination and Shuv uh, Majumber, who just run, uh, just won in Calgary Heritage in, in Alberta. Um, I put the question to them, you know, is it annoying to you that I write about you as the diverse future of the Conservative Party? And they had kind of mixed responses. Um, but then I also thought about these are all men. I'm writing about, you know, diverse men. And I usually only see men in the crowds at Pierre Polyev rallies with the odd woman uh, scattered about there. And it is certainly something we can see in polling that even across the entire Western world, conservative politics is just not as appealing to women. And I don't know, you know, this is a chicken and egg thing. It's become a very broy thing online. And even the the rallies we saw with Pierre Polyev last year just had that kind of a feeling to them. And I'll put this out there, something I covered a couple of years ago. Jason Kenney tried really hard to get more women into his party in 2019. And I did some reporting on that. I wrote about it for the National Post. It was a really big concerted effort because he just knew he had a problem. 
and there were mixed results. It's a really hard thing to do. And if I were in the conservative movement, the conservative party, I'd be thinking about this right now. I'd be starting this kind of stuff, getting out there, encouraging people to run. And in the conservative party, it's harder because they tend to lean towards open nominations. The grassroots isn't going to accept people floated in. So it is a problem and it's a really hard problem to solve as we've even found out at the hub with female writers. So Sean, let me try to offer an answer then get a response from you. Um, I've had some conversations with, you know, parents now I've got uh, friends who have teenage boys um, who are, you know, 14, 15, 16 and up. And interestingly, many of them seem very um, surprisingly kind of attuned and aware of conservative ideas. It's, it's kind of interesting, a little bit bizarre, and I don't know, maybe hopeful about the extent to which conservatism has, has a future, but what a lot of these parents have expressed to me, knowing my association with the hub, is a concern that the views that these young men are are manifesting are more towards the Tucker Tate end of the spectrum of conservative thinking. This is what turns them on, gets them excited. And my answer to these parents was, and I don't know if this is the right one, I said, you know, kind of chill out. I think this is a lot to do with a a rebellion. It's it, it, it's ironic, but being conservative now is to be rebellious, to be rebellious against the conventional tropes of identity culture and politics. And I think all the, the adherence of those different creeds now in our society, uh, some of which have taken on almost a semi-religious aspect, they need to understand that by pushing this stuff relentlessly on young men, and to some extent, really making young men feel quite anxious and uncertain about being a man and and being uh, heteronormative, that elicits a reaction. In other words, it, this is Newtonian physics, uh, uh, Sean. For every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. And what we're seeing here, unfortunately, is a dynamic. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, a ton of insight there, Rudyard. Um, one of the my favorite hub dialogues that we've recorded over the past 18 months or so uh, was with uh, Richard Reeves, the former Brookings Institution scholar, whose book of boys and men uh, really took off last year. And there's something going on um, in the world of boys and men um, that hasn't gotten enough political and policy attention. There's been such a focus on the goal of gender equality for women, which of course is important. Um, but what's kind of counterintuitive is that so much of that attention and focus is happening at the precise moment that women are outstripping men in so many ways, educationally, increasingly in um, fast growing areas of employment, et cetera. And it's of boy, it's boys and men who are increasingly feeling alienated and marginalized in the economy and the broader society. And for better or for worse, some of these figures like the Tates um, um, seem to to speak to it. You know, um, one way to think about it, I've been thinking about this recently, guys, is that like Jordan Peterson, for all his flaws, uh, and I actually happen to think he's a a, a flawed. Um, figure for people to um, sort of think, organize their lives around. Um, at least he had some um, positive wisdom to impart on on young men about discipline and, and so on. But he's become something of a gateway drug 
uh, to the Andrew Tates of the world who don't have any of that. This is full on misogyny, full on um, um, kind of toxic ideas and so on. And I do think that there is an onus on everyone from the left to the right um, to start to pay greater attention to what's going on amongst young boys uh, in in our society. So, Stuart, to come to you, give you the last word on this topic. I wonder if another piece of the puzzle here to move away from that young cohort of men who are, you know, grappling with their maleness or probably reacting in a countercultural way to a lot of the uh, tropes and kind of ideologies, again, that we've, you know, created around gender and identity that are, you know, are confusing and maybe to some extent destabilizing for a lot of young men. If you move up the age range to men in their 20s and 30s, I sense another cohort that feels incredibly frustrated at this moment, that the the effects of out-of-control housing prices, um, inflation, uh, low productivity, it's, it's created a, an environment within which they cannot progress according to, and some people would say that these are just, again, stereotypes, but they are powerful to me, social pressures. Um, I felt them as a, a younger man in my 20s and 30s to start a home, find a stable relationship, uh, begin a family. You know, these are very instinctual drives that, that both men and women have, but you can't ignore that they, that part of male status and self-worth comes about through the provisioning of things to other people, to women, to your children, to, I don't know, being able to assemble those pieces of what we consider an adult life. And many people through no fault of their own, Stuart, I think find themselves unable to do that economically not emotionally, not psychologically, they are uneconomically prevented from leaving behind a lot of the aspects of adolescence and arriving at what we would have understood from our parents and our fathers to be manhood. Yeah, as Sean and I sometimes talk about this, which is that we're a little too old for this stuff, but also, you know, we both won the marriage sweepstakes and we have a mortgage and we have kids and that kind of stuff leaves you with less time for weird YouTube videos, but also they're just less compelling to you because the sort of conventional life you've set up for yourself is a good rebuttal to it. And I think a lot of this comes down to men sort of developing later in life than they used to, having fewer opportunities. Um, they're getting outpaced in the educational sweepstakes by women. And I would also say to anyone who thinks of environmental policy in a vacuum, you need to also think about the jobs that the oil and gas industry provides along with other industries, but that's the big one to men who have less education and in other countries have fueled these kinds of populist waves that come out of this. I think that is sort of the trigger here is hopelessness a lack of opportunity. And when you saw last year, there was a reason that vaccine mandates were a big issue. COVID was obviously a big issue, but it was also because people felt like they weren't able to work. They were being blocked from working and providing by the government. And that is a toxic thing to have going on in society. And I think that's exactly what we're dealing with here. Rudyard, I know you want to move to the next topic, but if I can just uh, provide a bit of a preview to my essay, which will run tomorrow at the Hub, 
I zero in on a group that I'm calling overeducated underachievers. Um, these are people who follow the kind of social signals um, that the thing you did after you went to high school was you went to university and maybe you even did an advanced degree. And what we're finding in Canada, the US, the UK and elsewhere is a growing cohort of, of university graduates who aren't working in jobs commensurate to their to the, their investment in their own human capital. Um, and it seems to me that cohort is one that we ought to be paying a, a closer attention to. They're the ones um, who it seems to me um, are the, the most susceptible to some of these kind of toxic ideas and trends that we've been talking about. Great, uh, Sean. We will look for that uh, long-form essay on Saturday, the Saturday edition of your Hub newsletter. Let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk Greenbelt uh, in Ontario. We're not going to talk about the politics of this. We're going to talk about the process. Living in the new world With an Hub has, as you know, a bizarre fascination with the machinery of government. What works, what doesn't? What does this whole controversy over the Greenbelt and the awarding of these new lands for development say about internal government processes, how they've changed? Could be as boring as watching paint dry. I promise you it will not. Stay tuned for that conversation right after this break. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for the Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, the Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much of the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. Welcome back to The Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Sean, let me come to you first. You know, lots of uh, press and ink being spilt on um, the Attorney General of Ontario's report on the awarding of these uh, various uh, tracts of land, 15 in total from uh, the province's Greenbelt to a series of developers that seem allegedly to be connected with the government, all that still to be determined, if ever. I want to kind of let the rest of the mainstream media, you know, chase that dog and pony show. And instead, I want to tap into your experience of when you were in government, you uh, were a member of Stephen Harper's uh, prime minister's office and how the government and civil service interacted together. Because I have this suspicion, this feeling that part of the reason this whole thing, this controversy may have come about is a kind of breakdown of the 
the role of the public service vis-a-vis political staff and and it and it going both ways political staff having respect for some independence and autonomy and authority on the part of the public service and the public service having some sense of role and purpose uh, that could have interests that are broader and not aligned with necessarily their political masters. I have a sense here, Sean, but you've been on the inside. Maybe this is all breaking down. And if it is, what the heck does that mean for how we govern ourselves in a in a big province like Ontario. Yeah, I think this subtext is the real key to the Greenbelt story. The, the 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 details about the Greenbelt decision itself don't interest me all that much. I you know I think there is a strong case that we ought to be revisiting um uh the, the Greenbelt you know in in the name of trying to address the housing supply challenges uh, facing the province. But you know we've talked a lot on this podcast, Rudyard, about state capacity and it seems to me this issue is a a part of that um that a a, a key component of canada's straight capacity historically has been clear roles for the political arm of the government and the public service arm of the government the political arm of the government sets the agenda it's the one with um the mandate and legitimacy to essentially set the policy direction and the permanent independent public service is responsible for execution and part of execution is is providing um you know what they call fearless advice and loyal implementation and it seems to me what this story suggests is the fearless advice component has dissipated and it's not even so much loyal implementation anymore it's blind implementation and um that's bad for um political governments but it's bad for the country more fundamentally, um, we've and I think this isn't unique to the province of Ontario. You're seeing this kind of increasingly manifest in policymaking and governments across the country. Let me just give one example, and then I'll I'll, I'll turn it over to the two of you. Uh, I remember, guys, as a member of the Harper government, you know, uh, the, the, my political colleagues and I wanting to make changes to press releases to kind of inter insert political language or the government's kind of narrative or even small things. Remember like changing the government of Canada to the Harper government. And we got tremendous pushback. There were instances where the clerk of the Privy Council would have taken that directly to the prime minister to say that your staff was kind of crossing a line. And you just don't get the sense that's happening anymore. And one proof point, it seems to me, is go look at press releases that governments across the country are releasing. The distinction between government press releases and party press releases, for all intents and purposes, has disappeared. And I think it reflects this deeper problem, Rudyard, that I'm glad you're drawing attention to here. Thanks, Sean. Great insights. Uh, You know, Stuart, what worries me here is is aside from you know not being a fan of big government not particularly thinking that you know we need more bureaucracy but i do appreciate the fact that we have the state capacity to follow processes and that those processes you would hope would lead to better decisions on the part of government precisely because we have a process some of those processes are are un, and almost like unwritten conventions that have evolved and developed over time. But in this instance, it seems like there were very specific processes around consultation and um, all kinds of additional steps and measures that normally would have been undertaken, including some 
again, maybe this is more convention, but the idea that a, a decision of this monumental nature that created over $8 billion of land value overnight for a handful of companies would have been something that would have gone to the Ontario cabinet, that the minister would have had to bring forward a proposal to cabinet and arguably defend that in front of uh, his, in this case, his, his colleagues. None of this seems to have happened. And instead, if the uh, auditor general's report is right, we have not the minister, but the minister's chief of staff who has no official standing really within the machinery of government, other than he's a political appointee, driving the entire process from site selection, which lands were chosen, to the process through which uh, these decisions were made, which included these uh, you know, uh, gag orders on the civil servants who were assessing the tracts of land, to removing from that assessment process all kinds of policy and procedure that would normally have been used to identify were they suitable? Are they connected to sewer systems? Are they uh, adjacent to environmentally sensitive, especially environmentally sensitive land? Everything out the window, a kind of stovepipe of uh, command and control from the political staff deep down into the bowels of the bureaucracy. I don't know, Stuart. I just, I look at this and I, it all seems to be really in a really anti-democratic, if you know what I mean. Like it, it just seems like a government pursuing its will, its agenda, regardless of any kind of sensibility towards what a decision of this nature, of this scope, of this import would demand. And that's not necessarily to criticize the Ford government because they wanted to do what they wanted to do to create more housing capacity. But it worries me as a citizen of Ontario, an Ontario taxpayer, that I just feel like I'm not getting any value from government. What's the point of having the bureaucracy in this case? Why even bother? Why not just run everything out of the minister's office and uh, just have a bunch of factotums in the bureaucracy who could rubber stamp whatever the minister wants to do? You, you lose the creative tension, I guess what I'm trying to say, between these two entities, the public service there to advise and, and consult and the political staff there to represent the will of the minister and arguably the will of the voter. Yeah, the the process that was detailed in that report, I was actually flabbergasted. That's pretty rare <laughs> these days, you know, from reading an AG report. But the other thing is that the chief of staff started his job in July and the decision was made in December of last year which is just incredible that it would it would push through that quickly. And when you say anti-democratic, I think it is worth also mentioning that the whether you think this is a good idea or not, the Ford government specifically said they wouldn't do it. That was part of the election campaign was debates around this. And I, the thing that concerns me is someone who probably thinks we need more housing supply almost everywhere in Canada. When you do it like this, when it looks like there's shady stuff going on, even if there isn't, even if it comes out that this was totally fine, this is exactly what makes people not want this kind of stuff happening. Because if you look at municipal politics, it's always about developers, developers making money. And that's in totally conventional above board uh, housing developments. I mean, the idea that you would make profit for solving one of the biggest crises in Canada seems to make sense to me, but it tends to gum up the works. So I, I think the process needs to be good when you're doing something this important. And this is something we've seen from the federal government that even some of their 
the initiatives they care the most about because the process is bad. They've lost support for them. Yeah, well, let me just dwell on that for a second, guys, because it, you know, I, I do want to underscore the, the the main point here about these broader issues with respect to state capacity. So we have public servants essentially rubber stamping instructions, not from elected officials, but their staff. We have large, seemingly large swaths of federal policymaking essentially being outsourced to consulting firms, right? Uh, as we've seen in the past couple of years, um, we have uh, in increasing evidence that our national security uh uh, organizations at the national level aren't kind of talking to one another. We've had um, passport issues, our healthcare systems increasingly underwater. Like I, I, I think that we've told ourselves this, um, this nice story for a long time about how our public services and our public servants are a comparative advantage and first in class and all the rest. The truth is we're spending about 40% of GDP on government in this country. And it's pretty self-evident we're not getting our money's worth. And, you know, part of that involves, I think, um, you know, from our point of view, um, probably reducing the size and scope and ambition of government and focusing on its knitting. That's a, a message that Pierre Polyev, I think, is, has found some resonance for. But, you know, we're, we're not going to get rid of government. We're not, you know, I, I don't know about you guys. I'm not an anarchist. And in fact, I think there's a strong case that we're going to have to have a bigger, larger government moving forward because of demography, because of climate change, because of geopolitics, et cetera. Um, and so figuring out what's going on within our governments is, it seems to me, one of the biggest, most foundational public policy challenges our country faces. Yeah, two quick observations. One, the AG report, it's worth reading. Um, we'll put a link in it uh, in the show notes. Um, page 4142 is a kind of key passage to get at what we're talking about here today. And the AG goes so as far, it practically reads like a, a hub viewpoint to make uh, you know a reference to the UK model system, whereby if there is a decision which would have you know raised flags internally, according to a series of criteria in the UK public service, which this decision given its nature would definitely have done so, there has to be a letter written by their equivalent of the deputy minister to the minister. And the minister has to reply back in, in written form, overriding uh, the department or the deputy minister's advice. That letter then is logged with different parts of the government and is ultimately uh, a transparent piece of the a public record. So I, I think a lot of these things, I think process matters, you know? Um, you, we have them for a reason. We don't just throw them out for expediency, as tempting as that is, as slow as government can be. If you don't have process, then anything can happen. And we're into the Wild West. And you are going to have good decisions and bad decisions. But I think overall, over time, you're going to have more bad decisions because of the lack of, of structure and the lack of transparency that seems to be growing up within uh, these various public services. As you say, it's not just in Ontario. This is a, a phenomenon. I mean, look at municipal governments across Canada if you really want to see uh, dysfunctionality. So try uh, to take the train in Ottawa. <laughs> yeah. So to come back to you with the last word, though, Sean, because we talked about a bit about this this week, you made an interesting observation that maybe part of this all has to do with something as prosaic and mundane as remote work. 
that the fact that large portions of the government are working remotely and are no longer present together as teams, maybe the solidarity, in a sense, the connectivity of the public service has really broken down. And for better or worse, this is now providing the political wing and arm of government with an opportunity to, to kind of uh, push forward with uh, issues and agendas in ways that in the past they, they simply couldn't because there was more simply coherence amongst the, the public service. What do you think of that? Yeah, exactly. I think, you, you know, this conversation prompts the question, what's behind um, these growing trends? And, you know, one can point to different factors, um, the inherent incentives of, in promotion within the public service, um, etc., a lack of a kind of public service ethos that maybe would have been part of the um, of of the old kind of Ottawa men um, uh, institutions. Um, but, you know, I, I honestly think there's a, a case that that remote work or hybrid work is is behind it. Um, as you say, it kind of enables political staff to kind of pick off individual public servants one at a time, as opposed to having to sit in a briefing with the minister, with the senior public servants on the other side of the table and work through the costs and benefits of different decisions. Um, it means that there's less coherence across the system. Like one of the things about the Greenbelt decision is it's ostensibly about housing, but it obviously also has climate or environmental considerations. It has infrastructure ones. Um, but it, you get the sense that, th that those parts of the government weren't involved in these decisions. And um, in-person meetings, what we used to call four-corner meetings, where you'd have representatives from the, the various departments in a room kind of confronting the, the questions, it seems to me may have uh, I slowed this down, uh, ultimately overturned it, or at least, as you say, forced the, the political arm of government to, to take ownership at the highest level for a decision that has pretty extraordinary consequences in, 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 in the economy. And, and so, yeah, I, I do think we've been beating the drum at the, at the hub about the sort of costs and trade-offs involved with the, um, uh, the durability of remote work. And, and this may be one staring us right in the face. Great. Well, Stuart, let's wrap up. Give us a preview. What are we going to see in the hub this weekend, next week? Uh, what are you uh, and the editorial team working on in terms of uh, stories and content? Uh, all, as always, I think you should watch out for Ginny Roth on, on Monday morning. And a couple of pieces that are just going across the weekend, I think you should check out. Sean's mentioned his piece. I've got a piece on uh, new people in the Conservative Party that I think are going to make a big impact. And on our topic of state capacity, I tried to cram it into my answer, but I was already rambling too long. Um, Jason Kenney and Kathleen Wynne interviewed by Amanda Lang. And Jason Kenney talks a little bit about state capacity. And I think it's worth pointing out we're having these discussions as the public service is growing in numbers and cost. Um, I, I think Jason, uh, I think Kenny has some pretty good comments on that in that piece. Excellent. All exclusively in the hub for your watching, listening and reading pleasure. Great job, guys. Let's do this again next Friday. Have a terrific summer weekend. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. 
You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.